This is Jay Martin, the Executive Director of CHIP NYC, and you're listening to the Real Talk Podcast. And welcome to another episode of the Real Talk Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Jay Martin. Jay Martin is the Executive Director of CHIP, or CHIP NYC, also known as the Community Housing Improvement Program. Jay is a lobbyist, an advocate for more housing in New York City, including affordable and better housing all around. CHIP was founded way back in 1966 as a trade association for building owners for of over 400,000 rent-stabilized rental properties across New York City's five boroughs. CHIP provides educational programming, compliance, assistance, and legislative advocacy to more than 4,000 building owners or 4,000 members. CHIP advocates for the rights of property owners, empowering them to make major investments in their properties and achieve financial sustainability while maintaining affordable properties. As a representative for the owners of one third of New York City's rent stabilized homes, CHIP plays an invaluable role in establishing trust, good relations, and community between New York City property owners and the residents. Jay has been featured in countless articles. I personally have been a longtime follower of yours, have read dozens of articles of yours, which I will plug. And he's also been on a few podcasts hosted by brokers in the commercial landscape. So I am proud to say that I potentially am maybe the first guest uh, or first to get Jay on a podcast episode hosted by a residential real estate broker. Please follow Jay Martin and his insightful tidbits on his work on Twitter at jmart222, and I'll plug that in the show notes, as well as his LinkedIn page, which I also plug in the show notes as well. In addition to that, I'll also plug a few more of his recent articles and the links in the show notes, which a lot of the real deal recently, you see the Supreme Court ruling that we will get to, as well as some of the previous posts related to post-pandemic uh, issues with rent stabilization, the housing court issues, things of that nature. So Jay, welcome. Thank you. And that was a gracious introduction. I appreciate that. Ah, well, you know, we have a lot more to get to, to get <laughs> to know you. So Great. to get started, we are going to get into the one line answers section of the show. So the first one is, good one, rent control and rent stabilization. Nonsense. Nonsense. NYC Housing Court. A mess. 421A tax abatement. Necessary. Necessary. Real estate property insurance. Out of control. NYC migrant crisis. Troubling. Mm-hmm. Twitter and social media. I think this is probably one I, I struggle with every day. But you know, and to surmise in one one or two words, necessary evil. And someone else, a lot of other agents have said that too in the past. Local Law 11. Bad. Maybe we'll come back to that. I'm really interested in this yeah. as well. Local Law 97. Unworkable. Real estate taxes. Out of control. New York City zoning laws. Outdated. Affordable housing. Necessary. DSA. And for those who, this is not the shoe company, right? DSA. We're talking the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA. Disconnected from reality. Private equity and funds that play in the multifamily market. Necessary. Multifamily housing. Necessary. Co-ops. Good. Condominiums. Good. Bonus. The real deal. I mean, necessary. It's essential. It's essential. Okay, it's essential. So let's go back to just real quickly. I want to take a minute to discuss Local Law 11. It's one of my favorite topics, primarily because we delve into a lot of these residential co-ops and condos. We sell in the city as a product, and it seems like for us, the it's 
the board, it's the scaffolding company, it's the Department of Buildings. There's a lot of major players involved and it costs a lot of money. And sometimes it's cost prohibitive for some. It's some people, it's a stopgap for violations. What are your thoughts on Local 11 and the way it works, especially in your world? Yeah, I mean, as as with most things, and my background is coming to lobbying. In fact, next year will be five years I've been at CHIP. Yes, so congrats. The timing is fortuitous. That, uh, <laughs> Every six to seven years. Yeah, yeah. I spent 15 <laughs> years in, in government and I see... There's always usually good intent behind laws. In yes. Article 11, I think there was good intent and obviously concern that building facades would fall and hurt people. Which has happened. And it has happened. And so there's obviously a necessary then blowback or legislative fix that's proposed. But the problem is then there's usually little conversation that happens with property owners and the kind of process of how to implement such laws. Sure. And so when you have things like Article 11, you have mandatory inspections that are probably redundant, the, how often they have to happen. So the cost is prohibitive. Then you have, to your point, co-ops who have limited budgets, uh, limited operating expenses. Then you have monopolies, very few companies that actually do this work. So they have very high pricing to begin with. And then you have the bureaucracy of government permitting how often the sheds go up, how often they have to go up to be there during the inspection process, getting approval from DOB to pull the sheds down. All that very easy for the elected officials to say, well, okay, this has to be done every five years, every 10 years when the requirements are with no correlation to the cost and no correlation to the bureaucracy helping the process go smoothly. Oftentimes we have property owners who will have complete their inspections and then are waiting for up to a year or two just to pull the sheds down because they're waiting for inspections to pass the approval process. So they've done everything they need to do on their end, but they're waiting for the bureaucracy of city government to sign off on the inspection process. So there's a lot of things we can do. It's not, again, good intent, and the laws can be worked to make them work better. Mm -hmm. um, but as of now, our, it could absolutely uh, be tweaked, work better for both property owners and the city itself. That's right. For listeners, I'm going to rewind. Local All 11 work is, would you like to explain this, what it exactly is in I, maybe three or four sentences? I would actually love to hear it from your perspective sure. as someone who's worked with co-ops. Because, okay. for, you know, from a rent-stabilized perspective, it's yet another mandate on, on maintaining a building. That's right. And sometimes, you know, from their perspective, every 10 years is pretty redundant. In fact, the idea that a building would every 10 years need an inspection and that you would have the facade falling apart if you're... Especially if you find something in the facade that needs to be done, the idea that after 10 years it would need to be fixed means that you probably got a bad contractor to be in the way. <laughs> if facades are falling Talk apart after it. 10 years, it's a problem. So, um, you know, and, and the co-ops are even in, in a worst case scenario because they have even more limited budgets. And the rent-stabilized side, our, our income's regulated by the government, by the rents. And there's no line in the rent guidelines towards accumulation of costs where it says, okay, you're coming up on local law 11 mandates, you have to do an inspection, now you're going to get to do a rent increase. That's not how it works. No, no absolutely not. We'll talk about more of that in a yeah. little bit. In my, our vocabulary, in our world, with local law 11 is essentially, if you're a high-rise building, every six to seven years, you must go through brick-pointing inspection and brick-pointing to maintain the facade of the co-op or the condominium. In my experience, a building that is at least 20 to 30 floors, the cost for just the inspection and minor repairs is a million dollars. That's how much it starts. Most co-ops of that magnitude have a reserve of about a million dollars. So they will essentially deplete their entire capital reserve fund to complete this type of work. Yeah. Now, that's the basis of it. The intent 
is obviously a good one. You don't want anyone getting killed on the sidewalk. You don't want anything falling off the, off the facade. You also don't want any bad actors coming in, contractors coming in and doing bad work and then DOB coming in and say, okay, it's okay, you can, you can, you're done. You know, you're, you, you have to have scaffolding. The intent is good, but back to what you said, it comes down to the same thing. We do not have the right mechanisms to have quality control and cost so that both parties are equally happy with each other. Correct. There's no rhyme or reason of the cost of the operations, the uh, stopgap of violations. It, they don't want to pay violations every month. You have to have a scaffolding. The stopgap of the contracting work and inspections, the DOB inspectors coming in and approving the work, that all seems to be very, very messy. And thus, a lot of co-ops, unfortunately, deplete their reserve fund and their cash reserve fund and they become non-compliant with Fannie Mae. There's a lot of regulations involved yep. that can result from bad local law 11 work. It's yep. a huge, huge pain point. And I agree with you that it could be better. We could talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. I think you said something interesting. Uh, real estate property insurance is just straight up crazy. It's unworkable. Yep. I had an article recently published about this what is your stance and what's going on in that world well, i mean there's there's a lot of things going on so i mean nationally obviously there's been concerning trends of of providers leaving markets altogether uh high liability concerns florida california florida california different reasons florida uh, weather related climate change related california um and more to the, the point here in new york is what we're hearing from the providers is they're saying there's the, the liability claims are through the roof, that they're, they're getting a lot of slip and fall claims, um, which pans out somewhat from what the average property owner would experience and the claims that they have had filed against them in buildings. But it doesn't explain the entire scenario. So what we've also been dealing with is we've had properties leaving the market. But those providers, when they re-up their proposals and their plans, they actually will ask how many voucher holders do you have in the in the building? How many Section 8 vouchers do you have? How many subsidized rents do you have? Seems kind of contradictory to the discriminatory laws that are on the books for property owners have to mandate that they're not, as far as fair income housing laws, they aren't allowed to discriminate whether or not a person has a voucher, they have cash, or anyone who walks through the door has to be treated the exact same way. But now the insurance provider is going to treat the property owner differently increase their rates or drop them altogether if they have a voucher holder or if they have more voucher holders than the next person. We're also seeing certain communities get their premiums jacked up 30, 40% higher than they were in the previous year. And there's no rhyme or reason other than they're arguing that they're in neighborhoods that are quote unquote bad. Um, that's a serious problem. It needs to be figured out. We have proposed various solutions. We think that the, the government has to backstop a product at some point provide an alternative uh, insurance product, um, perhaps an umbrella policy of some sort. Because right now what's happening is there's so few providers, especially in places like the Bronx, insurance is becoming one of the largest expenses on the building, higher than even property taxes in some buildings. So until the government comes in and kind of sets a baseline for the cost of the product itself, there's no real end in sight to how high the insurance product is going to keep going. Sensitive question. Why is the insurance company treating Section 8 as a riskier product? And you'd have to, that's the problem. And that's what we have to get down to. And they're not legally allowed to do that, mm -hmm. but their underwriting process allows them to consider risk. So the question is, what is it in the demographic? What is it? Exactly. What is it? Risk? So that's what they would say probably publicly and what they would say in their underwriting process are two different things. So that's what I think the government has to help us get to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very tricky. I'm sure an actuary would like to answer that, but cannot answer that even if they wanted to. Correct. Before we get deep dive into your passions of housing. Let's get the audience to know you a little bit, who you are first. So you know, where are you from and where do you currently reside? I know you're near our office. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and then uh, what brought to where you are today professionally? So I was born in Philly. Okay. Uh, I'm in Philadelphia. My family's from there. Funny that you're a Bills fan. I am a Bills fan. So, you know, everybody rebels against their family at some point. My dad was a big Eagles fan. I'm sure. Um, big Phillies fan, big Eagles fan. Uh-huh. So in 1990, the first professional football game I went to was Jets and Bills. Oh. He got tickets through work. Oh, nice. First game, Meadowlands, 1990. And so I made my decision that uh, it, between Jets and Bills was the first game I saw in person. Uh, also, I, I couldn't. Root for the same team my dad was rooting for. I, was, I had to oppose him. <laughs> had, to, had to rebel somehow. So my, my fighting the man, quote-unquote, has started at a very early age. Uh. I think it started back then. <laughs> so that's how I became a Bills fan. So, oh, okay. You know, it's been a lot of hardship, unfortunately, I, with the Bills. But what are you going to do? Uh, well, not not so much in the last couple, two years, three years. You guys uh, have been down to the playoffs almost We'll, we'll win one before I die, I hope. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> so... Yeah, started in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, uh, then got involved in politics. My grandfather was in the labor movement. For mm-hmm. I had actually several family members. He was with the steelworkers. I had two uncles with the painters and the operating engineers. And that's what kind of connected me to politics. Okay. Traveled around the country uh, working on various campaigns. And 2007, I ended up working for state senator here, actually in the Bronx, and uh, actually five years ago, I made the jump from government and legislation to working uh, for the real estate industry. You joined CHIP right before the real estate industry almost was brought down to its heels because of COVID. Yeah. Must have uh, been some dramatic. For, for because of COVID <laughs> and actually five and a half months before the HSTPA was passed. The That's right. The 2019 rent August so. 2019. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. So I had the, I had the privilege of seeing everything that was wrong. And I've had the last five years to kind of work on what I think needs to change. Sure. In the industry. No so, one has the experience that you have now at this stage. You've just been through so many dramatic swings of ups right. and downs and downs and mostly downs. Yeah. But we'll go to that again. Yeah. Your favorite city or state outside of New York City? Where do you, you have a, are you still loyal to Philly or Pennsylvania or uh, Eastern I mean, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania yeah. I go home every pretty, few weeks. Pretty easy commute. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just there this past weekend. Okay. Um, but my, I think if the retirement is not happening anytime soon, but Southern California, San Diego, I worked a campaign. You're still very young. For six months uh, oh. in San Diego, and I fell oh. in love with Southern California. So, wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, Danielle and I over here, yeah. uh, we are actually traveling there next week for the first time. My first time. Is it your first time? I was only there for one or two days in a layover. So I oh, that doesn't count. Well, I got to see a few. Oh, sites, oh you were there between a labor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. There's yeah. something about it. Not it's a, no. uh, I love it. I love it. You're, you're 15 minutes from the ocean, 15 minutes from like a mountain. If you want to go hiking or climbing, or uh, it's perfect. That I did not know. Yeah, I did not know you could downhill mountain bike in San Diego. Apparently, that's a thing. Like not far, not far, I not far did not from know. Uh, the city, and it's very laid back. It's it's a very different quality <sighs> than New York. Um, it's California style. Yeah, very, very much California style. I don't think you're quite as pretentious as L.A. is yet because L.A. thinks it's the, they are the, the yeah. scene. Yeah, sure. So, uh, that's, yeah, San Diego is where I love it. Okay. Well, and getting it's, uh, you haven't, I don't, I don't, have you been yet? No. You haven't asked yeah. sure, Dong. You haven't been asked yet. You got a couple, things, you got a couple yeah. places to go now. Okay, good to know. Well, San Diego is, is, is yeah. a go-to. Who is the GOAT? of New York City real estate? This is more of a hot takes question, so there's no re- really right or wrong answer, obviously. As some uh, people have said, de Blasio. Some people have said Larry Silverstein. Yeah. yeah so who's your goat? Honestly, I think Bob Knackle. I, I mean, oh, I, yes. I, I mean, the I have best. not found anyone who could say a negative thing about the guy. And, oh. and it's and his ability and willingness to kind of teach people and, and new people coming into the industry and, and sit down with them and 
take time and learn new things. And he just joined Twitter in the last six months or so. He's the realist. Got tens of thousands. And, and what's amazing to me is most people of his demographic, and I don't think he's old enough, he'd probably be offended if I said that, but, you know, they have an aversion to new things. And he does it. And he embraces so it. Good. And I think that's so important in fixing this industry and fixing politics and fixing whatever problems we have to face as a country and a society. That, the, that every prior generation embraces new things, and he does that, and I think it's a good leadership. Let's take this clip and send it to Bob Knackle so he yeah. can see it. We'll put us on Twitter, too, so he, he, he has it on his Twitter feed. Yeah. He, uh, we're, also, we're also big fans of Bob. Yeah. He's been on my podcast. Yeah. We've talked extensively, and I think, Danielle, one of your favorite guests, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Bob? Yeah. For sure, for sure. He's a special guy. He's a New Yorker through and through. New Yorker through and through. Oh, he's also a pen guy. So he's oh. also got ties to oh, Philly yeah. as well. Oh, okay. So that's where you guys have some common ground there. Nice. Your favorite restaurant, New York City. Let's just say your current oh, or most recent. Uh, I'd say right now, Atera. Where is this? Uh, Soho area. That's a two-star Michelin place. Special occasion place. Mm-hmm. But it's very good. Very All right, give me your all-time New York City go-to restaurant or establishment. Uh, I like the Second Avenue Deli. Oh, I'm very a, good. I like, yeah, just the... Good pastrami with right. a, a bowl of uh, soup. Matzo ball? Yeah, matzo ball soup. Chicken or matzo ball? Yeah. It's a go-to. Can't decide what I want for dinner. It's a perfect, it's a perfect <laughs> meal. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, yeah, the, the good old beef tongue or uh, pastrami. You can't yeah. go wrong. Yeah. Okay. If you could live in any block in the city or any cross street or any building in the city, where would it be? Why? I love where I live now, honestly, with the West Village. I, West I can't Village. imagine living anywhere else. I have, I, right across the street, I, I look at, I can see Stonewall, I, 7th and Christopher. Oh, it's yes. a great neighborhood. Okay. The, when the parade happened a few weeks ago, the Halloween parade, it was amazing. Obviously, during Pride, it's a great, great yeah, neighborhood to be absolutely. in. Absolutely. One of my favorite buildings, uh, well, pre-war condos in the city, 45 Christopher. Bing and Bing Condo. It's a nice building. And uh, yeah, it's a great block. And also very near my client's uh, restaurants, Jeffrey Groceries. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've I've eaten there many times. That's right. Yeah. Really good restaurant. Okay. So that would be one of my staples. So let's switch gears and we're going to pivot. And really, you know, Jay, you're here today to discuss, obviously, your agenda, your point of view. You're extremely polarizing on Twitter. And not necessarily in a negative way. You are, I, I, I believe you, you are an optimist. I yeah, believe you. Yeah. And that's what your your bio is. That, <laughs> believe it or not, I am an optimist. That's yeah. what you say. And I think you are. But I want to go back to the, the beginning of when we used to have real estate conferences at Compass. And we had Eric Adams. Then he was not the mayor, but Eric Adams was just a public figure. And he actually came to Compass twice. You met him once. And he's always said in real estate, and we were back then a raw, raw, oh, let's go real estate. But he was more real in a sense of, he said that real estate is angry. There's so much anger. There is the grandma that lives in the Bronx or Brooklyn, where he represented, the developers would come and just underprice their home and convince her to move out. Mm -hmm. And then there will be a brand new building that gets built. And then the neighborhood doesn't like it because now their rents are going up. Now they're being gentrified. Mm-hmm. A lot of anger in real estate where stabilized renters or grandmas are getting taken advantage of by big developers and their building gets raised to the ground to for new development. I think what you're doing and what you're talking about is in that same arena. It's You're in that angry arena, which is why you sound perhaps polarizing on Twitter. Because naturally, who cannot be? You have to be. Yeah. So... Let's start with this. You know, how did we get to where we are today with rent control, rent stabilization laws? 
Do the issues with these laws seem worse to you than it was when you started CHIP five years ago? And if so, why? So first of all, I would say I'm polarizing. And I think that the reason that is, is equal parts that I've called out not only the lawmakers, but also our own industry, frankly. And I think, I, again, I've had the benefit of come, being fairly new coming into this and looking at it from the perspective of someone who was on the lawmakers' side, who worked with lawmakers, and seeing from their perspective what real estate was presenting. And for the longest time, I've never understood how the argument on behalf of rent-stabilized property owners in real estate was a property rights argument and not an argument about a product that we're delivering. We're delivering essential affordable housing, but it isn't subsidized. There's no tax credit for a majority of the rent-stabilized product that's out there. Certainly there's 421A, but that's really less than 10% of the rent-stabilized stock. The rest of rent-stabilized housing is property owners with regulated incomes on their properties, figuring out how to pay all their bills, keep 100-year-old buildings working and, and maintained with restricted rents. And the costs are not controlled. The costs always go up. Property taxes go up. Insurance, to our prior point, goes Milk up. and eggs go up. Yeah, and the cost is always going up. We expect, as a society, as a renter myself, that the property owner is going to just keep figuring that out. And the government keeps saying, well, we, we also want to make sure that the, the building looks good. And these guys have to just figure it out. I don't want the person's rent to go up. I don't either. But how can a property owner be the one that has to figure out the problems of society, how we how we account for wage increases, how we account for cost increases on operating. Um, and the property owner's responsibility is to somehow figure out all that while just dealing with a capped rent increase. So I think there's so many ways that we can show that, well, these, these folks aren't just renters. They're not just paying the mortgage and the property taxes. There's a symbiotic relationship there. there there's not an opposition. And explaining to renters that the benefit of the property owner is not mutually exclusive to the benefit of a renter. As long as the building has good flowing cash revenue, I can keep the building well-maintained. I will invest back in the building because, by the way, it benefits me. The value goes up in the building. Yeah, that's why I want to put more money back into it. But the rent stabilization system, to your, your question, functions on the idea that if we restrict the income to the building, somehow that's going to incentivize the property owner to keep making the building better for the renter. It doesn't work that way. It's human nature. The, the property owner is going to figure out ways to cut costs at all so that they can keep maintaining the building. So if you keep restricting the income and you keep restricting it, just like if you, you squeeze a, a handful of sand, eventually you're going to run out of sand because you squeeze all the sand out. So you don't have enough resources to keep the buildings up. And at the same time, People have a right to complain about the quality of their housing. So why is it that rent-stabilized buildings have far more evictions than brand new buildings or buildings built in the last 10 years? Because those buildings are not rent-controlled or rent-stabilized. They have rents where they have enough money. So if a renter can't pay that rent, that's where the government has a responsibility to come in and pay the difference, Mm -hmm. I believe. So we're constantly saying, well, if the renter can't pay it, then the property owner does. There's, that's not a situation that can continue because we've seen costs increase precipitously. The bottom line rent on a rent-stabilized one-bedroom is $1,100. It will never go below that because that's how much it costs to run the building. The problem is we have over 100,000 rents in the city that are below $1,100. So where does the money come from that's below the $1,100 baseline? Other renters. 
So we're actually forcing the property owner to raise rents on other renters and rent stabilized. Mm -hmm. The system, unless there's subsidy, forces a price gouging across the board. It forces people to restrict the improvements on the buildings. It's a scarcity mindset. We have to give resources to this building, not less. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what brings me to my ideology and why I'm kind of confrontational. Because I think everybody has a responsibility, government, property owners, and renters to some degree, on making sure that this system works. This current system doesn't work. Rent stabilization was enacted in what, 1974? 74, but the baseline of it comes back from going all the way back to just right after World War II. Because you guys were established in 1966. So w what that was, was a response of tens of thousands of soldiers were coming back from the war. There was a baby boom, too. And people needed a place to live. We didn't build enough housing. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Tons of people, not enough places to live. So you enact a rent control scheme, so you, you cap the rents. We still haven't built enough housing since, since the 40s. <laughs> So the government's re response to that has always been, well, let's control the, the rents. And the, at the same time, all the responses and fixes to that have been trying to solve for the original problem, which is we've never built enough housing in the city in the first place. 421A, all the tax incentives, all the tax breaks, they're all solving, trying to solve the original problem that was created in the 40s, which was we've never kept up with the amount of housing that needs to be built to have a rational functioning housing market where the price can be actually fluctuated by bringing new housing on board. That's why people, like Eric Adams right, aptly put, people get angry because they see a new housing development go up and their rents don't go down. They think the market doesn't work properly. The problem is they don't understand that that one building in their neighborhood isn't what's making the rent go up. The problem is it's only one building going up in their neighborhood. If there were 10, 20, 30 buildings going up, the rent would actually go down and the, the yield curve over time would show that markets do work rationally when they are allowed to work, but they've never been allowed to work because of zoning and because of rent control. A hypothetical situation, what you just said, 100,000 stabilized units, let's just say today become vacant, hypothetically. Yeah. Then obviously the overall gross trends in Manhattan will go down. Wouldn't you think that the average multifamily owner of one building, four units, per floor, 16 apartments in the whole building, half of it was stabilized, they all become free market. Wouldn't it net financially or mathematically the, the free market apartments will rents, rents will go down? It would be about the same. I mean, I'm just trying to go into the other side of the picture here sure. and be the advocate and say, well, yeah, I mean, the owner, just on average, will be netting the same amount of income. If that's how building management worked, yeah, I mean, but it's not. It's because every time the rent goes up on a free market unit, the property tax assessment goes up because the valuation of the building goes up mm -hmm. higher. So it's not as a, it's not a one to one. Yeah. Just because you get a, a unit that's able to go from a rent stabilized, and by the way, since 2019, you have no ability to deregulate the unit of housing. Mm -hmm. The other very punitive thing, which is causing actually a vacancy issue, to your question. We, we believe there's twenty five to 30,000 vacant rent-stabilized units right now. That are not that, being used. That are not being used at all in a housing shortage. That Because it, it's mathematically impossible for an owner to make money renting the apartment out. They actually save money by not renting mm -hmm. it. Math isn't math, does it? It doesn't make sense because they would need to invest eighty dollars to $100,000 to bring that unit back online after 40 or 50 years of occupancy. 80000 is probably a pretty good figure. I mean, right. if you could probably cut corners, make it a little bit cheaper for a one-bedroom and maybe get it down to 50. A one or two, you, but when you, you get in a two-bedroom, two-bedroom, or if it has lead, if it has asbestos, if you're doing full abatements, 
which we want to promote, by the way. Again, if, if we're not, if we're getting away from a scarcity mindset, you want quality housing for renters. We, if we start from that perspective and worry about paying it later, instead of worrying about how do we pay it first, and that's what causes bad quality housing. We always worry about, oh, we can't let the rent go up. Well, if you, if you start from that perspective, then the housing's always gonna be crap. Let's, get, let's bring it back to what you just said earlier again. $100,000, $70,000 to $80,000 to renovate a one bedroom on a stabilized unit of, let's just say, $1,000 a month. How many years, what's the statistic here? Oh, it's... It, We're it, talking 50 plus years? 50 years because the current math works out to $83 a month $83 that they're allowed to collect in reimbursement. 50 years. So, uh, does that make financial sense to you if you were a building owner? I think it's a very tough proposition. To put you on the spot. No chance, right? <laughs> 50 years. I mean, 50 years, you're going to be 60 years old. But, but <laughs> and So when we talk to lawmakers about this, they'll say, well, they're making money on the other units. But that's how we got into this problem in the first place. Yeah, that's right. The assumption that an owner can keep running units below their operating costs, and we include renovation in the operating cost here. So if, just assuming, well, they're going to have to make it up somewhere else in the building. That means raising rents on other people. That's how we get into this cycle where rents keep going up. Some units are kept arbitrarily low and there's no means testing. So we have people, I know for a fact, I've met them, who have second homes outside the city. And I'm not saying this is majority of people, but there are because there's no mean testing who have six, $700 apartments in rent-stabilized housing. And they have second and third homes. The Hamptons house. Yeah. Where is the stabilization laws from 1974 going to be? Where? I mean, whereas we know it's 1974, when it was a lot of the apartments have been stabilized or converted or when co-ops, renters that in co-ops also that we deal with have kind of stayed in those apartments. The gap on the mathematics will eventually have to take it over the edge where owners are going to either start to basically lose their buildings or they're going to... And the banks will take over? Like what's the gap? It has been 30, 40 years. Yeah. Right. So it's been fixed from the 1970s, 1974 till today where gas is almost five bucks a gallon or maybe in California it's more. The obviously milk, eggs, we'll just go back to basics of sewage insurance needs that we just talked about. The gap has become so much wider than what it was cost in the 70s. What point is it going to break? We're there. Um, we're, think we're there now. We're, we're, so it's taken about five years. The 2019 rent laws were enacted in 2019. And what happened? Two things happened. Three things, actually. COVID, mm-hmm. to your point. And so billions of dollars in rent arrears were accumulated. We still have $1.2 billion in rent arrears from court cases that haven't gone through the court systems. Where are those arrears? Just in Manhattan? Do you think mostly oh, in Manhattan? or no, mo- across the spectrum. Brooklyn, all the five boroughs. I, I saw a $1,200 apartment with a $60,000 arrear yesterday. Oh goodness. I mean, that's five years. Five years, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's gone through the court system. It's still going through the court system, but it, it hasn't been adjudicated finally. So there's that. There's the arrears balances. Then... 2019 rent laws eliminated any pathway to deregulation or rent increases on vacancy. So vacancy control was enacted. Then insurance rates. So people are coming, their their loans are maturing. They're getting into the period where they refinance and they can't because the refinancing would be astronomically more expensive on what their current interest rate is. Especially if they, let's just say, had a 5-1 or 7-1 arm yeah. product and it's coming up this year, next year, or the, in two years, yeah. there's no way they're refinancing. Correct. That's right. So mortgages are just essentially a no-go Correct. in that instance. The banks don't want these properties because they're not, they, there's no there's no path to revenue. 
So what's what's happening is they're being devalued first. So we're seeing rent stabilized properties 60, 70 percent off what they were five years ago, sure. which, you know, some people think that's a good thing on the tenant advocate community side, because then it opens up access to purchase capital for social housing. But I challenge them to say, well, where are you to purchase? Now these buildings are 60 to 70 percent off. Now, now it's your opportunity to turn these into social housing. Where, where's the pot of money to turn them to buy them and turn them over to the tenants? There's no pot of money. There's no program now for the government to say, okay, we're going to buy these off of these struggling property owners and turn them in. Many of my owners would love to have another buyer in the market. In this case, their tenants would organize and collected with government backing to buy their properties if they're willing to sell. No option there. Not so. one transaction <laughs> has happened for quote unquote social housing. Correct. Interesting. I wonder what social housing is. What does that even mean? Do you think in your point of view, like for example, I think DSA is probably one that's pro-social housing. Yes. What does that even mean? How does social housing work? Well, in a nutshell, in the context that they mean it, it means the decommodification of housing. They believe property owners by and large are committing a mortal sin by making profit off of housing. Housing, sure. And my argument to them has been, first of all, they're not. But second of all, let's say you're not making a profit. By the way, many owners are now not because of the 2019 rent law. So how are you paying to your question about the co-ops? Ask a nonprofit housing provider how much their expenses have gone up. Ask a co-op how much their expenses, how much does it cost to comply with local law 11? How much are their local law 97 mandates going to cost them? Where does social housing get the money to pay for all that? If it's the under the auspices of decommodification, not wanting to raise rents, Look, nobody wants their rent. I don't want my rent to go up. The average person doesn't want to pay more for a car payment or their <laughs> house payment. I get that. But at some point, somebody has to say, well, this has to be paid for. And if this idea is, well, it's it's all because a property owner is greedy and they want to make profit. That's the only reason housing costs keep going up. That is a complete disconnect from reality because what's happening is the costs keep going up and we're restricting these owners' ability to pay for it. Let's switch gears a little bit because this could be talked that we just said yeah. could be talked about for hours. Yeah, sure. You, we mentioned the New York City housing court system and how broken it is. You said five years for the court system on someone that's paying $1,200 a month, owes $60,000 and still not paying rent. How is it so broken to a point where it takes five years to potentially evict somebody for non-payment? Yeah. And what are your solutions that could be implemented to satisfy both parties? Not in a cruel way of, let's just kick all these people out. Yeah, no, like the common misconception from the other side, and maybe this is why I'm polarizing, because there is another side here. There's, sure. there's tenant groups, and as a tenant, and as someone who has who's been evicted before when I was a child, mm -hmm. my mother and I. You said uh, that, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, again, good intentions. You get it. You've bad execution. Sure. Their idea is that every eviction proceeding is an intent by the property owner to gain possession. And in reality, 90% plus of non-payment proceedings, the owner has no intent of gaining possession. They are simply going through the court process because they need to get paid. <laughs> they have to pay their bills. And if the renter of record on the lease isn't gonna pay for it, where does the money come from to pay the mortgage, to pay the property taxes, to pay the what? Oh, yeah. The building in and of itself doesn't create money. It's no. not a bank. It doesn't, it's not cash, cash register. So the rent comes, that's the business. Just like a restaurant makes its money from selling food, a building makes its money from selling housing. So if you can't sell and can't collect, you can't get the money. So 90% of cases, so there was 106,000 
eviction cases filed so far this year. 106,000, okay. That seems like a remarkable amount. Yeah. Do you know how many executed removals there have been in the entire city of nine uh, million people? Uh, 106,000, so uh, say five to 10,000? Uh, you're close, 8,000. 8,000, okay. 8,000. Yeah, so that's, less than 10%. That's how, less than 10% mm -hmm. have actually <clears throat> resulted in somebody losing their home. Everyone else was for non-payment, and they were worked out in two things, either an HRA, one-shot deal, so either uh, they got subsidy from the government or a voucher system to keep them in the housing, or they worked out a payment plan with, with the property mm -hmm. owner. But because the court system is broken and because all those cases went through a months-long court process in years, and there were so many of them, those people ended up owing more money at the end of the court process than they did when the eviction was first filed. So what we think is a much better solution, is a diversion program. Instead of going into housing court and paying for a lawyer and a tenant paying for a lawyer, is for a mediation for the tenant and the landlord to agree to a third-party mediation program that says before it gets to 12 months and 18 months and two years and three years worth of rent owed, where the government is helping to pay part of it and the renter is going to get debt, hundreds of thousands tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of debt that they're never going to get out from under. Three to four months in, they go to a mediation program, they work out a payment program then, the eviction case is dropped before it gets to the part where I have property owners are spending fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for a case on the initial filing for five thousand dollars in rent. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's an it's a lawyer em employment program. <laughs> Basically, yeah, <laughs> lawyers always win, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's it's kind of the nature of the game in any area or any arena of business. Mm -hmm. So you know, the third party, I get it. Is that hard to implement? I mean, how do you get that bill passed? What do you do to? We got to get buy-in from renters. I think renters, by and large, especially those who've struggled to pay their rent, don't want to go through the process of an eviction court proceeding. The opposition to this is folks like the Legal Aid Society who get tens of millions of dollars to provide free attorneys. They're concerned that their attorneys won't have court cases then to represent mm -hmm. folks. But we would argue they can represent them during the mediation process. That's just as That would keep them just as busy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, court is still there and with more space to handle cases now because we've diverted cases for if a, te if a tenant wants to sue an owner for non-maintenance, any concerns a renter may have, there's much more bandwidth for the court to handle those cases and vice versa for a property owner to do a, an actual eviction if the tenant is violating the lease egregiously. Are there other states that you've studied or have or have executed this well? There's a lot of states who've done this, some with varying degrees of sex. Philadelphia is actually uh -huh. has this. Um, the property owners didn't like it at first yeah. because their eviction process works in three days, not, oh. not months. So their core process moves very quickly. Wow. So, of course, they didn't like the idea of a diversion program at first, but then COVID hit. And then you were looking at delays and hardship claims that were stretching into years plus. So now it's a quicker method of dealing with non-payments. Mm -hmm. And all, at the end of the day, this is a bill collection, um, just like a car payment or anything else. Right. Collection so, agency, sure. So using the court system as a collection agency doesn't make sense. No. It's, it's an egregious use of resources. So coming up with a better system makes more sense mm -hmm. for everybody. Mm -hmm. Construction costs. You talked about this on Twitter. You wrote yeah. one of your posts that the NYCHA, the Housing Authority, and nonprofits can run up small apartment renovations up to $100,000. And we deal with a lot of renovation contractors and not flips, but 
older yeah. properties that were owned by co-op owners, shareholders that have had them since the eighties. Yeah. You know, in order to sell them, you got to bring them up to speed. Otherwise, the purchase price will be too low, and the co-op rejected the sales deal. So we always have our sellers, if they can, renovate. Sure. So while the renovations, perhaps that we do, or we oversee, I oversee. There are they are not luxury renovations. We're not talking Calcutta marble, yep. illegally imported from Iran, and then hired and shut down a street and then throw throw you know get a crane in to crane in a one piece Iranian stone and shower backsplash. We're not talking about that, right? Exactly. Right? People have done that, but we're not we're sure. not talking about that. Respectable gut renovations that we do for a bathroom we could probably get it done for 12 and a half grand, 13 grand, you know, somewhere around there. And then the rest of the apartment, we could probably get it done for another 30 or 40 grand. It won't hit $100,000 for smaller apartments, for one bedrooms at least, especially one bedrooms. So why is it that what you said, the total, total renovation cost would be 100,000 or maybe more. What What is it that the government bureaucracies, when they get involved, why is it so much more expensive? Yeah, so just point of clarification. So. NYCHA actually, in their bid to renovate their housing uh, complexes, is pegging the cost at 427000 Oh, that's impossible. Um, <laughs> that is crazy. 427000 per apartment. And that isn't for a complete teardown. That's for gut renovation. And we speculate that you may have contractors that you know that you can get it down to 60000 40000 <laughs> I love their numbers. I'll get them and I'll refer them to my, my owners. <laughs> okay. They're, they're, our owner costs average about 80000 to to 100000 per apartment, sometimes larger, sometimes smaller. But because many of them are considering capping gas lines because of local on 97 mandates. So they're going for full electrification. They're doing full get rid of it. So that's where the cost is. Apartment by apartment. But even still, even still, even still, we're talking one, one quarter the cost that NYCHA is currently paying. And I'll tell you why. You asked. Labor costs. So, and I come from a union family. And I, I support my, my union brothers and sisters. But that is a prohibitive additional cost that private owners don't necessarily always have to pay. Mm-hmm. Is the labor cost, the regulation cost, and permitting costs that NYCHA plays. And bureaucracy, because on top of the actual work, NYCHA has a $4 billion operating budget every year. Sure. And somewhere along the line, an extra two to $300,000 in renovation costs is needed per apartment. But it speaks to, getting back to your prior point, where Eric Adams aptly put it, um, the frustration with private owners. Private owners, by and large, private industry, does things cheaper, more efficiently and more effective if it's incentivized to do so. Because it has to, that's the competitiveness of market economies. Government doesn't have to do any of that. Government can always ask for more money and more resources. There's no need to be competitive because it's not competing with anyone else. And that's where you get into situations where they're saying it costs 400,000 plus to renovate NYCHA housing. And I hear from the other side all the time, well, it's because they were defunded for years. Well. Rent-stabilized owners have regulated rents that haven't gone up. They ha- the increases haven't even kept up with the cost of living, uh, CPI. Sure. The rent guidelines board increases over the last 10 years have not kept up with CPI. And, by the way, our buildings are twice as old as NYCHA. The average NYCHA complex was built in 1950. Mm. The average rent-stabilized building was built in 1920. So where's the disconnect? And, and at some point, the difference between renovating a 1920 and a 1950 building is irrelevant. There's no additional cost 
to tearing out a, a, a toilet or a bathroom or a sink. So somewhere in there, there's bureaucratic bloat and private owners can do it cheaper and better. So let the free market economy just do the free market and the math will math yeah. rather than when the bureaucracies get involved. Math doesn't math. Explain your analogy of the government setting caps on the airplane tickets and maintenance. You had, that's a, that was a post you had yeah. on Twitter that I liked. Yeah, it's the same. It's it, to the same point. Same, it's, same point. It's it's safety. You know, again, it's the mindset is airplane safety is so important. We wouldn't possibly think of telling airplanes, airplane operators, that we don't want our wings falling off in that, the air. That right? We're going to dictate how much money they can make because it could compromise the safety of the, the airplane. The federal government cannot go to United and Delta and say, "Hey, we're going to cap the amount of money you can spend because we don't like these ticket prices." Correct. But they're, that's exactly what they're doing in housing in New York City. They're saying, you cannot spend more than $15,000 on renovating an apartment. If you do, we're not going to allow you to recoup that in the rent. You can spend it and lose it, but we're going to cap it at $15,000 over 30 years. I'm making the correlation. Obviously, it's a little bit more dramatic if something fails in an airplane than it fails in an apartment. But why do rent-stabilized renters deserve, quote-unquote, a worse quality housing product than someone who's paying for a luxury apartment in the Upper West Side. I'd argue that they don't. They deserve just, as, just the quality that anyone else does. But we're restricting the quality by restricting the ability for the owner to invest in the unit. And again, if the renter can't afford the rent, then the government should come in with subsidy or help lower the cost of providing the housing so that the difference can be met in the middle. Reduce taxes... Correct. Or give allow better rent increase or do something. Correct. You're not saying let's kick out all the rent stabilized tenants out of the, no. their apartments. Your opinion, how many are there any politicians that live in rent stabilized housing? Yes. I know for a fact there are. Would you say they're the majority of them or many of them? I think there's about ten, ten. assembly and senators in the city that live in the there. city. Okay. Do the majority of the voters obviously all politicians want their jobs next yeah. year or two years or whatever they're what, what, in whatever position they're in. Are, is the majority voter base, in your opinion, that actually go and vote? Are they stabilized prop, Are they stabilized tenants? And is that why they cater to the government caters to the uh, stabilized population so much? I think perception becomes reality uh, in a lot of cases. And I think the perception is the reality on perception who, of who the voter is, mm -hmm. who the average voter is. I think voters, by and large, are probably uh, in certain boroughs, the majority of voters. I think in the Bronx, probably Brooklyn, some degree in Queens, probably outnumber voter homeowners. Um, that that math probably changes in Staten Island because there's more homeowners than there Sorry. are renters. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, there's a percep perception. Um, and I think there's just a natural want of lawmakers to cater to a certain constituency. And I don't blame renters for wanting to vote in their best interests. Of course. I blame lawmakers for not telling them the truth. And the truth is that housing has a cost. It's a set cost. And it has to be maintained. And what they said for so long is that whenever your rent goes up, it's greed. It's not because I've voted to raise your property taxes. It's not because the insurance companies are price gouging the property owner. It's not because the water and sewer costs and the energy costs are have tripled, tripled. in the last yeah. five years. Mm -hmm. And that to me is an important part of getting renters to be part of the conversation. If renters knew how much their housing were, was and how much it costs to provide the housing, I think they would have a much better understanding of the dynamic that's playing out and they're part of. Not necessarily that they want their rent to raise, but they would know who to blame. 
instead of the property owner, why are you why are you increasing my rent? They would go to the lawmaker and say, why are you increasing the property taxes on my building? Why are you why are you forcing this guy to raise my rent to pay for your property taxes? It's a it's it's the same thing. They don't want their rent to go up, but the, it's an important PowerPoint because you're pushing the power back on someone different, someone who can make the change. The landlord can't lower their property taxes, but the lawmaker can. Oh, most certainly. Where did it all go wrong? Was it just a collection of just bad actors, bad landlords? Is it are they movies? Where did the landlord get such a bad well, rap? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> among look, senators, it and goes back to fiefdom time, right? I mean, it goes back to medieval times. <laughs> medieval There's time, always been, the landlord, right? right. <laughs> yeah, and I hate the term landlord, and, and we'll eventually get rid of it. Sounds like a medieval time yes, position, it doesn't is, it? The landlord. It I mean, there's always been this dichotomy between a guy who's you give you know a quarter or a third or half of your paycheck to every month to live there, and you're like, well, why? You know, it's it's frustrating because you don't own it at the end of the day. It's a huge cost. I get it. And then something goes wrong. And it's not different than any other customer service. If you have a car and something breaks on it, you're not happy about it. And you immediately think that that car is a piece of crap. So the same thing with housing, the same dynamic. It's a customer service-based operation, I believe, at the end of the day. So there's always going to be this friction that happens to begin with. And the politics has exploited it time and time again. It benefits prop, it benefits lawmakers to, to pass the blame of the cost of running housing to the property owners. There's a natural kind of belief system that, that a landlord's always out for themselves anyway, because there were a lot of bad actors. And there was a lot of people who were benefiting from the prior system. So there needed to be a change. The extreme change that came in 2019 was a was an overcorrection for I think decades of people not being regulated properly and people who are being a little too greedy, frankly. So yeah, it was there's there's egg on everybody's faces. The property owners are responsible, the lawmakers are responsible, and to some degree the renters are as well. But the only way we're going to fix it is if we educate everyone to, to know who the where the real problems are and where the pain points are. Mm-hmm. Two more questions. And I, you're, you're big on social media. You probably have seen this. There seems to be a trend on the Gen Z generation saying they're, they're posting a video of themselves crying about how expensive life is, how expensive things are now. Uh, their salaries can't afford for rent. They can't pay for essential needs. They can't pay for gasoline. What do you think there is a lot of truth in this? And do you think that's also igniting the fire on politicians going leaning more left? Yeah, I think... I think lawmakers... Or do you think it's exaggerated and you think they should just sack it up and, you know, shut up and work harder? Doesn't every generation say that about the... About <laughs> oh, the, back in my right, day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in my day, things were... I walked uh, I walked to school uphill both ways. But, um, yeah, that's always <laughs> you the walk. way it is. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's some truth. There's always some truth to it that every generation wants things better than the prior generation. Sure. Why should I be having to pay as much as I am? So, you know... There's people who look and say, well, the cost of a house was $7,000, a brand new home was $7,000 in the 60s, 50s. Why is it $200,000, $300,000 now in the suburbs? Why Why is it so expensive? Rent was, the average rent was $600 in 1975. Why is it what it is now? The in mailman, the, the butcher could buy a single family home. Correct. Correct. In the 60s and 70s. Right. But but if you look at the, dem- if you look at, and I do this because it's my job, but if you look at proportionality of payrolls in this city and what the average person makes. I'm not talking about those who are 
minimum wage because certainly they struggle in this city. Of and, but the majority of people and what the rent they are paying proportionate to their incomes. And if you look at what the proportionate incomes were in the 40s and mm. 50s to what the rent was they were paying. Uh, yeah, the rent was $100 a month, but they were also making $7 a day. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and they were also living in SROs. Mm -hmm. They weren't living in two-bedroom condos. Right. They right. were living sharing in, bathrooms. They were sharing floor. bathrooms. Yeah. And they they were they were uh, sharing kitchens and they were cooking for each other. So look, we can we can hobble together a whole bunch of solutions to do this. And other countries, by the way, have SROs and have shared living and micro apartments. There are many ways we can solve the housing shortage, but it's going to require like reality for a lot of people. You can't live an influencer lifestyle on an average person's salary and wages. So I think. You know, there's a collective kind of rationality that everybody just kind of has to live with. Social media is that polarizing you thing, right? You want to live in the most expensive city in the world. Influencer. You have yeah. to reframe, yeah, how, how, how that is going to work out for you. Yeah, I totally get it. The most recent article, and I know we had to reschedule because of this ruling, yeah. but the Supreme Court didn't even review the, the bill that was proposed and that you are a proponent of. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that just to close out this? Yeah, uh, so the lawsuit, we had, we challenged the 2019 round laws and, and what was called a broad facial challenge. So the public taking of land. The problem, yeah. So, so despite you know, how I would love to argue publicly and privately. Legally, you have to make very specific arguments to get in front of the Supreme Court. Sure. And so uh, our challenge was what was called a facial challenge. So you don't have a very specific client. In other words, it's not, you know, Jay Martin versus the state of New York. It is an organization and you're speaking on behalf of many aggrieved folks. So those cases typically have a much harder time being considered by the Supreme Court. They much more are, you think about landmark cases, Roe v. Wade, et cetera, any, any kind of controversial big case you can think of, there's always one plaintiff against um, uh, someone they're suing. So the court is much more inclined to take up that, those kind of cases. There is actually still a case still alive, 74 Pinehurst, challenging the 2019 rent law, and it's still being conferenced by this court that has similar arguments to ours, but it has an applied challenge. So it, it takes a facial and it has a specific as applied challenge because they have one, one plaintiff. So there is a chance that the court still reviews parts of the 2019 law this session, but if not, we're prepared to go up with individual challenges with specific plaintiffs. We believe that this was a more reflection of the type of case that was presented and not the facts of the case that were presented. So the 2019 law is going to go down one way or the other, either by legislation. We work with lawmakers to, to turn it back after they see the dramatic effects and the negative effects it's had on the market and the industry and housing. Or we're eventually going to find the right fact pattern in court that strikes down parts of the law. New York is the only city in the entire country that regulates vacant units of housing. In other words, the government says, even though there's no renter here, the rent has to stay what this is. Not even Socialist California? Not even Socialist California. Interesting. When an apartment is vacant, the owner can reset the rent to whatever sure. rent they want. Right. Then the rent regulation goes back on it. Not so in New York. If an apartment's $700 today, occupied, when it's unoccupied, it stays $700. That is terribly punitive to housing quality. Mm -hmm. The listeners on this episode, what can they do today? Is it voting on a specific person? Is it getting building owners to be part of your union or your organization? Not yeah. union, sorry. 
the organization. Yeah. What what is it that helps you achieve the goals that you would like to achieve with your members? I think it's all those things. Um, there is no silver bullet, really. Um, and, and I say this often, like what happened in 2019 and where the industry is didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen by one thing. It was a collaboration, to your point before, of many things and many years that got us to this point. It's going to take that long to unwind it to get back to a point of rationality. So, yes, we need people to vote more. The voting turnout now in the election has been abysmal. We've had early voting. Less than 3% of the population of New York City has voted. All-time lows. Why do you think that is? The presumption that the current candidates can't be beat, mm -hmm. the lack of quality candidates against them, sure, um, and a lot going on in the world, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, distraction. People sure. are distracted. There's social media inundating us with other things at all times, people working all the time don't have the attention span to pay to city council races and individual races that are going on. Mm -hmm. But it's so important because the city council, state senate, state assembly, far more than Congress, far more than Senate, far more than the president of the United States, impacts the real estate industry in New York than anything else. And anything else that the federal government at the federal level is doing. Correct. I agree with that. Well, Jay, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Again, please follow Jay on Twitter. I'll put him in the show notes. Follow his LinkedIn. Read his articles. I encourage you. And Jay, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you.